Good morning again. It is great to see all of you with us this morning. Isaiah chapter 56. You can take your Bibles out and turn there if you've not done that already. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you if you want to take one of those out and follow along that way as well. And if you know someone that doesn't own a Bible or need a Bible yourself, take one of ours. It's now yours. It's our gift to you. Isaiah 56, we're going to go through all of the verses of uh, Isaiah 56, 1 through 12. It will be a kind of an easy walk, but it'll be an incredibly important message. It is amazing how God works in uh, setting up uh, the life of the person that will be proclaiming his word in a real-time experience. Humble Outcasts are Welcome In is the title, and you see there uh, that first uh, phrase maybe up on the screens, life in a mixed up world, life in a mixed up world. So I walked out this morning and we had an RV in front of the church, and as you know in Los Angeles, it's probably not good news that an RV has decided to make its home in front of your house or wherever it may be. And this case today, the RV, there was a person outside and there was a person inside. And you may wonder how I know that. Well, they were yelling at each other pretty good. And I could hear the outside and the inside in very uh, plain uh, cursing language that was all that they were saying back and forth to each other. And so I decided to intervene, which I know everyone's going to say that's dumb. But I went up there and I just said, hey, can I help you guys? And then I got called every name on the face of the planet, mind my own business, everything like that. I'm like, you guys realize you are in front of our church and you're saying like some really interesting language and we've got people coming well, what, do you not trust us? And I went, yeah, you know what, I don't. <laughs> well, do you think I'm a threat? Well, the way you're talking, you could be seen like that. Well, I'm not. Well, then don't talk like that. <laughs> well, I'm leaving. I'm actually very happy that you're going to move your RV. <laughs> but you can come to church. You can park it there for like four minutes. And no, um, it's a mixed up world, right? You just, you just you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where things are going, and this text actually has a lot to say about that. So resuming where we're at in the book of Isaiah, we come to Isaiah 56, and Isaiah 57 uh, really fits in with it as well. These two chapters, you're going to see a rhythm back and forth between righteous and unrighteous. Uh, What I was hearing outside this morning would be in the unrighteous camp, all right? And it was hard for me to remain in the righteous camp, because you know how hard it can be to remain in that camp and not go where the world is at, right? We all understand that. It's very easy to trip into the unrighteous camp. Well, this talks about the wise and the foolish, and what Jesus would call in one of his parables, the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds. And we lived up in this mixed world, and it seems more and more evident as time unfolds, not just in our country, but around the world. I mean, who would have thought 
that if you increase the retirement age by two years, that they would burn down a country. But that's what's happening in France right now. You go from 62 to 64 years, and apparently that is the difference with the burning everything down. It seems like a little bit of a mixed up world. And Jesus told this parable in Matthew 13, the parable, parable of the wheat and the weeds. He described the kingdom of heaven in this way, like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And at night, while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came along and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. And then when the wheat sprouted, the formed heads and, and it became apparent as wheat and the weeds became evident because they didn't have the grain, the wheat heads that we're supposed to have. And in an agricultural time that they were in, the farmers depended on the quality of their crops. An enemy would sow weeds into their crops. Talk about friends. But an enemy would sow weeds to sabotage their neighbors, their, their businesses, all of those types of things. The tares in the parable were, were like a, it's a weed called a darnel, and it looks like wheat until it's mature. And then you go, oh, that's a weed, and that's worthless. And if it gets mixed up with our crop, no one will want to have that. So his servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? And the owner of the field says, an enemy did this. Servant says, do you want us to go and pull them up? And he said, no, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, it will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. And Jesus, explaining the parable, said, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom, basically the believers, the Christians. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is who? Is the devil. The wheat and the weeds grow together in close proximity, side by side. We live life together, but in the end, you're going to be separated one from another, the righteous go into the kingdom of heaven. The wicked burned into the fire of hell. The harvest, as it says there, is the end of the age. The harvesters are angels, and the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you hear that parable, it's actually easy to place our culture in the middle of that parable. To place our world in the middle of that parable. I, I think of the, incredible, the incredibly fast decay of the relationship between biblical Christianity and the American culture that we've seen over the last generation. And I'm just going to tell everyone... I mean, I, I, you guys know that, that uh, I, I don't want to be a downer. But I also think Scripture is very clear 
we're in for a rocky ride. Most of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing incredible persecution every day, every day of their lives. And, and I, I sense and I think we know that in the culture that we live in that we are rapidly moving down that path. And what we need then is we need to turn to the Word of God and find out what God is actually doing in the world because the harvester will be harvesting. And we have to derive hope and strength and purpose from that. I look at some of the people in this room even right now that have way more potentially decades in this world than, than some of the rest of us do. And when I was 24 years old and Jenny and I were just married, none of what we're experiencing in our culture today was on our radar screen. And maybe some of the rest of you in here that are a little older than Jen and I are like, yeah, that wasn't on ours either. And when you're in your 20s, our, our young crowd in here, you are going to have to navigate the world in a way that we didn't have to navigate at your age. And you're going to have to be way smarter than us, way braver than us, and you need God's word more than you can ever imagine. Because the evil one is pitching weeds everywhere. And it's hard to tell. If it's not mature, it's hard to tell. And the only way you can tell is to put it up to the lens of Scripture. And if it seems a little, just a little bit off, guess what that means? It is way off. And this is a good time for us to turn back and the book of Isaiah and look at where we've been and where it will go today. And so I thought today would be a great opportunity to review all 55 chapters. Okay, I'm not going to do that, <laughs> considering it's taken us a little over almost two years to go through it. Um, but let's zero in on the central theme of Isaiah again. The entire theme of Isaiah, really, at the end of the day, it's to be comforted, comforted because there's a Savior. There's a plan. I, I'm thinking of Isaiah 42, when we're introduced to the servant of the Lord. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations." He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. And in his law, the islands will put their hope. And when I read those words, I'm comforted. I'm, I'm, I'm actually hopeful. And we know who this person is. In Matthew 12, it says very clearly that this is Jesus. He's the suffering servant. He brings justice. And that's a, that's a word that's thrown out all over the place these days, right? Justice, justice, justice. Did you catch? It's His law. It's not what the world says is justice. It's His justice. And we need to be reminded, when it says justice, what does that mean? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In order to bring justice in that mindset then, what must happen to all of us? If, if God's going to be just and we are all sinners and He's perfect, what is the just thing that happens to us? We, we die. A, a second death. We, we don't get to go to heaven. Because that's actually justice. Because He's perfect and we're not. And nothing that we can do can bring about the reconciliation that's needed and so if God is a just God everyone goes to hell justice but it says mercy as well a merciful God a merciful servant Isaiah 49 and now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be him servant to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The servant of the Lord that brings justice, brings righteousness, brings mercy it's too small of a work just to bring back the people of God, the, the, the Hebrews. He's not just Israel's Savior. Whose Savior is He? He's the world's Savior. He's the world's Messiah. Salvation to the ends of the earth, to restore, to bring back even someone like me. The servant of the Lord is suffering. He doesn't hide his face from mocking or spitting or his back from being beaten. He's going to pay the price to redeem sinners in the world. That brings us to Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, what are we? We are healed. We are like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitutionary atonement, everyone. If you ever hear that word, that's what it means once again. The atoning work of Jesus. 
to meet the need of justice of the Lord. We have all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. God has laid all of that on Jesus, the suffering servant, the iniquity of all of us. He is our substitute. We, he was pierced for our transgressions. That's the gospel. Isaiah 54 makes it plain. Zion, the people of God, the tent that, makes, that takes in the, the people of God. What does it say in 54? That tent needs to get way bigger because he's bringing the... The, the nations in, those that, that accept him as Savior. And it's the invitation that happens in, in chapter 55, right? Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. All of you have, that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why spend on yourselves what doesn't satisfy. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. The time, call on him while he is near. The time is short. This is the focus. And that zips us right into Isaiah 56. You have this invitation, come, come into this incredible life with God, and he's going to have mercy on you. He's going to abundantly pardon. And some people are going to be drawn into that beautiful message of Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, the salvation of their souls because they repent and believe. They're going to come and they're going to feast. And others are not going to accept it. They're going to have hard hearts. They're going to live out their rebellion to the end of their days. And guess what? They're going to make life as miserable as they can for those that are Christians. There are people that have that goal. And so we have this mixed up experience. Verse 1 of Isaiah 56 starts talking about the wheat first. Thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. The future, the future glory of the Lord strengthens us to live well today. What do we have going for us today? We have the finished work of Christ on the cross. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit right now. And we have the future promises found in Scripture. God's point here is that His promises for the future are meant to be active for today. Isaiah 56.1 sets the tone for actually the rest of the book of Isaiah. My salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. 
And God, God's really going, hey, everyone, have you discovered the power of the future within me? The fullness of my salvation is on its way, everyone. Nothing's going to stop it. And I want you to live in that now. You are the ones through whom my coming kingdom is going to be felt today. You are a living sign of a future hope. Every one of you who are a Christian in here today, remember that. You are a living sign of a future hope. And that's why when you get a comment like, I did a long time ago in fourth grade. I was new at the school that I was going to. They had just moved back from Missouri, Missouri. And I was on, I can remember, you remember those old-fashioned monkey bar things? Those, those metal bars that yeah, everyone would fall off of and break their legs and stuff like that. So anyway, I thought they were totally cool. And I was on top of one of those. Didn't have any friends yet or anything like that. And this guy came up to me, and I'll never forget what he said, and I'll never forget his name, and I'd never forget the fact that something happened to him years later. A guy named Eric McKillops came up to me, climbed up the monkey bars to where I was sitting on top, and I wasn't the average fourth grader. I was less than average, like way smaller than average. I was what you would call a dinky dude. And so I'm sitting up there. The only thing I had going for me was that I was faster than anyone else, mostly because I had to learn how to get out. And I'm sitting up there, and Eric climbs up the monkey bars, and this is fourth grader to fourth grader, and Eric goes, there's something different about you. Are you a Christian? And I was like, uh, yeah, are you going to kill me? <laughs> and he just goes, no, that's cool, I am too. And he got down off the monkey bars and he left. We went to Boys State together as seniors in high school. And he was just the neatest Christian guy on the planet. Just a neat, neat guy. In his senior year in Christian's college out here in California, he was killed in a car accident. but I know where he's at. And see, the truth of that story had nothing to do about me. It's I remember him. He gave me hope in just a few words. And he gave me hope by how he lived his life. You are the ones through whom my coming kingdom is going to be felt today. We could probably go through the room here and hear many of those same types of stories. You are a prophetic presence of Christ in the world today as a Christian. 
live like it. Live like it. The justice, the righteousness he's talking about, how we actually treat one another. They're beautiful. The outward expression of trust and rest and delight in God. Verse 2, how blessed is the man who does this. And the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Look closely in verse 2 there. The Sabbath is not keeping our hands from doing any activity. And Jesus was very clear about that. Because what did the Pharisees do with Jesus doing things on the Sabbath? Oh, oh, oh. oh yeah, you're not keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 I am. I am keeping the Sabbath. The real Sabbath is keeping our hands from doing any evil. A true Sabbath rest is busy with truth, is busy with righteousness. It's kind of a paradox, which is much of what we see in the Bible, but the Sabbath really is busy rest. True justice and righteousness are received by grace and by our faith in Christ alone. Christ himself is the living Sabbath Sabbath for people Because otherwise we would be compulsively self-righteous without him, just like the Pharisees were. It's a joyful Sabbath. It's a weekly celebration, really. The Sabbath is of God's perfect creation in the beginning in Genesis uh, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. It was a foretaste of God's renewed creation at the end of time, and we'll see that in Isaiah 66 in a few weeks here. In other words, the Sabbath was a weekly dress rehearsal for heaven. The Pharisees didn't get it because it was all about self-righteousness, and we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. They couldn't distinguish between what the Sabbath was supposed to be and the form of the Sabbath, and they got, guess what, stuck in the weeds. You see, the essence of the Sabbath, the essence of our faith is really declaring, my life is no longer business as usual. I've come under God's care and God's direction. I'm now living on His ground rules. I'm looking forward to heaven. The Old Testament era there, the covenant there, the spirit of faith was expressed with these protocols in the Sabbath. For example, you wouldn't light a fire on the Sabbath in Exodus 35.3. The outward form of that observance was a sign of the Old Covenant. But in the flow of biblical theology, we need to realize that a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, God shifted what the Sabbath looked like. The essence of the Sabbath was always being in faith, enjoying the all-sufficient God. Knowing that you are loved by God so much that we rest from all our own strategies. We rest from self-preservation. And we live for Him. We need to see our lives that way in a real Sabbath rest. 
We need to get busy with truth and righteousness. God's passion for the essence of these things were more than the forms that were in there. It encourages then everyone who wants to be a child of God to be a child of God. Let's read verses 3 through 8 together. Here we go. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and holds fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be his slaves, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and takes hold of my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them glad in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples." Lord Yahweh, who gathers the banished of Israel, declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. For foreigners, emasculated men, barred from worship in Deuteronomy 23. And at that, for the reason, because it was foreign pagan cultures that God was protecting them from at that time, now he's inviting them in because God, through Christ, has made a way. And this wasn't obviously his last word to us. His last word is the welcome of come. Come and rest. There's been times, remember one time a, a guy came into church, not here, another place and I was I was by the double doors in the back uh, it was before the evening started and he started walking in and he was looking around and he was joking I get that but he also wasn't he walked in and he said well lightning didn't strike and there's really people that are under that assumption that there is no way God will accept them. And we have to once again level the playing field. Without Christ, how many of us are acceptable to God? Zero. So guess what? I am just like you, dude. Without Christ. But with Christ, what does it say in Isaiah 55? Come. Come feast with me. People feel awkward in churches. I get that. But God wants you to know this. The first thing that matters to him is that you rest in Christ. And you choose what pleases God which is following Christ. You choose Christ. You believe in Him. 
you hold fast to him. And if Christ has your heart, what is God saying? He's going to give you a place in his home better than you can ever imagine. So come on in. There's no insider trading. There's no outsider-ness. There's Christ and Christ alone. We need to understand that. He throws the doors wide open to any who will take Christ alone as their Savior. My house shall be called a house of prayer for what? All peoples. God's house is a really big house with lots of rooms, as one song said many years ago. With a big, big yard where we can play football. (laughs) But I digress. I'll tell you who wrote the song later, and it's really kind of funny song. Theologically wrong in many places. But I share the part that's correct, which is not the football part. (laughs) But what was Jesus doing when he was quoting Isaiah 56, 7? You know what he was doing? He was clearing the temple of people that weren't there for the right reason. Which leads us into the next section. It is kind of interesting to me when I thought about it that Jesus uses the section that Isaiah is talking about there about the, those that are coming in as the letting everyone know that's not there for the right reason to get out. Because verse 9 starts talking about the self-indulgent people, the weeds. All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest come to eat. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs have a strong appetite. They do not know satisfaction. And they are shepherds who do not know understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his greedy gain to the last one. Come, they say, let us take wine and let us drink heavily and strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, beyond exceedingly great. Kind of sounds like the World Economic Forum. If you've ever heard of that group. That's exactly who that is. A group of people that are self-indulgent, trying to create their own way. Verse 9 reverts to Israel in the days of rebellion. The nations are summoned to chastise a people whose watchmen don't see the danger 
It says they're like dumb dogs. They, they don't bark. They don't warn the people. They're, they're slumber-loving dreamers, mercenaries, self-seeking, greedy shepherds. And he's kind of going, where, where are we now compared to where we should be? And he looks at the leaders, actually, of God's people here, and he sees watchmen who are asleep on the job and shepherds who care only for themselves. He's saying in a warning to everyone in this, you know, hey, if you're in a position of trust and, and if God's put you in a place of leadership, lead people to God, not away from God. Warn them when things are on the horizon and you see things coming, warn them so they're prepared. There was a commentator recently commenting on a cable news show describing one of our nation's leaders as a profoundly unserious person. And at first I didn't hear who the person they were talking to about, their name, and I kind of tried to start thinking who they were talking about, and I pretty much couldn't get past about seven or 800 people because that's what it seems like. Profoundly unserious. Corruption. Character matters. What's in the heart matters. Why? Because of God. These leaders, even way back in Isaiah's day, are toasting their luck and thinking they never had it so good. And God is calling in their enemies slowly and saying, well, you know, guess what? Here come the beasts of the fields and they're going to devour you. And you see, we have to understand a few things here as we wrap this up. And I say that word usually every once in a while, so I know everyone's like, oh, we're almost done. No. Truth and righteousness are not our default DNA. Do you guys understand that? Truth and righteousness, God's justice and righteousness are not our default programming. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. You cannot work your way back to Him and get there. You can't just be some moralistic person and get back to where you need to be. The only power that can create true truth, true righteousness is Christ, faith in Christ. And for that, you need a revival in your own life. You need a revival in your own life. Don't look to anyone else's life. You need a revival in your life. Revive us again. If you're a Christian, you have to acknowledge as well that I need revival over and over and over and over again. And what we see here is 
just a very simple verses 9 through 12 are just simply saying this group's going to get devoured and they're not doing their jobs, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're not warning people, they're actually leading them astray. But the righteous will enter in peace into Sabbath rest. And he's also saying there's going to be no peace for the wicked. There's actually two trend lines that Isaiah is putting up there. If you like Excel, you're going to like the next 22 seconds of this message. Excel has these trend lines, right? You can do all different types of things with them, see where things are going, what the trend is. Isaiah's prophetic eyes discern two trend lines emerging. He sees that actually righteousness is disappearing. People are acting less and less in the way that they're supposed to be as following God. And I would say that sounds like a familiar trend line in our culture, doesn't it? But he also sees another trend line. What happens to those that are the wheat? they grow more and more in Christ. They become rooted more and more in Him. And as Scripture says over and over again, they grow closer and closer to Him. That's a trend line. You become more like Him as you live for Him. So the applications are actually very simple. If you are seeking, come to the banquet of Christ while there's time. Feast on Him, trust in Him, don't be an outsider. He's inviting the outsiders in. Be welcomed by faith in Christ into His world, His holy place. Accept the gifts that He wants to give you. He wants to adopt you as one of His sons and daughters. He wants to give you a name in His temple that will never end. We have to accept his conditions, the conditions of the new covenant. They're very simple. Confess Christ as your Lord and Savior. Believe on him. Repent of your sins and you will be what, Peter says? Saved. And as believers, brothers and sisters that are in here today, The mixed up nature of this world, we can lament it and we should lament it. We should grieve for what goes on in our world. Amen. It will cause trouble. It has caused trouble. There's a reason why there are Christian martyrs in the past and there will be Christian martyrs in the future. But we are actually called not to root, or not to run away. We are called to look at the weeds, and we may not be able to tell the difference. We may not be able to know what God's sovereign grace is going to do in people's lives. We may never know while we have a chance to be in front of them and with them. But we need to look at the opportunity that we have to speak the truth and love into people's lives and see God save people. And that happens in a mixed up world.
There will be constant grief, but it's temporary, right? The Lord someday is going to purge the world, but in the meantime, we're going to have to bear with the suffering that comes from seeing what's going on in our world and also, though, the joy of letting God use us to win people to Him. So we need to have a deep compassion on people that are lost. You weep for them. But we're not superior to them. Paul says, I have a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart. Who did he have that for? People that didn't know him, didn't know Jesus. So what did he do? He shared the truth. He lived in righteousness. And yes, you know what happened? It got Paul killed. But ask God to make you a little less annoyed in the weeds that you're walking through. A little less irritated. And instead of being irritated and annoyed, you weep and you pray. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The elect are surrounded by the unelect, and eventually some of those unelect become what? Elect. And who does God use in that process? The elect to share with the unelect. And that's the wheat that hasn't been converted yet. Because, see, there's actually three things going on. There's weeds that will remain weeds. There's wheat that you can tell is wheat. And there's wheat that you can't tell what they are yet. And sometimes even the elect will treat you badly until they are converted and they grow up to be wheat. Have any of you who are Christians out there go, oh yeah, I've said some really awful things to people in my past. And you pray for forgiveness and what does God do? He forgives. But we are called to be, all of us are called to be evangelists. And I know I'm speaking to the choir. We live in Los Angeles. And if you're a Christian living in Los Angeles area, you are an evangelist. Less than 10% of the Los Angeles area is in a church on any given Sunday. So it looks like a lot of weeds. But you know what we're called to do? We're called to 
Share the gospel. Be the, be the people that God wants us to be, and some of those weeds will become wheat through the power of Christ, using you and me as his messengers. And in my vernacular, when something like that happens, you do a little happy dance. And you just, you're excited to be used by God. And um, when I read this section of scripture, you know, that really is talking about salvation for the foreigner, uh, I'm excited to see what God will do with a little ragtag group of Christians in Los Angeles that are definitely not part of the majority. Definitely have leaders that are around them that are not warning people of the poor decisions they make. But they have God protecting them. They have God guiding them. And the gates of hell will never prevail, prevail against God's church. And so I'm excited to see what will happen. So maybe some of you today need to say it's time for me to grow into wheat and live for Christ. And for those of us who are believers, remember the hope. The harvester's coming. And at that time, we're going to be with all wheat. And that's going to be awesome. But we live in a Sabbath rest now every Lord's Day when we come here and gather together and we look at our fellow believers in Christ and go, wow, this is what it's going to be like forever and ever with a bunch of people. And that's pretty cool. Okay? Let's pray.